This is Andrew Faust with Permaculture Perspectives. Today I'm going to talk about two themes. One, I'm going to start with a reading from The New Wild by Fred Pierce. I love the subtitle of this book, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation. This book, we're going to look at the background of what created the rationalization to go to war with chemicals against wild plants in a wild landscape and to further the industrial machine's idea that a monoculture is how nature should be made to look. The second is we'll look at the cheery roots of the rationalization of chemicals in agriculture to feed people to address the Malthusian nonsense that we're nothing but a bunch of mindless rats who might not have the capacity to evolve wise adaptive measures to different constraints, but rather we'll just go on breeding to the point of self-annihilation when our environments can support us. And the reading to show that that is a misguided and dated view of human beings. We'll look at the writings by one of my favorite authors, Esther Bozerup, who wrote a book called The Conditions of Agricultural growth and Esther is a consultant and a Danish economist and she's an advisor to the United Nations and addresses in particular in this book the conditions of agricultural growth the Malthusian concept and that really is one of the foundations of the advent of the Green Revolution and chemicals in agriculture was standing on the shoulders of these very rudimentary views of human nature and human behavior that Thomas Malthus had that we'll get into in our second reading. But first, let's look at the roots, not to pun, of this idea that some plants are meant to be here and others are not, right? So, this is from Chapter 7, from The New Wild, Fred Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation. Chapter 7, Myths of the Aliens. The idea that alien species are things to be feared is relatively recent. Victorians and their acclimatization societies had no such concerns. But as scientists developed ideas about ecosystems as tightly knit associations of species that had evolved together to create a unified whole, the conclusion that outsiders are, quote, other and malign was almost inevitable. The sense that aliens represented a global scourge was first given full scientific expression by the British zoologist and ecologist Charles Elton. He is the founder of what academics today call invasion biology. A mild-mannered and unpretentious Oxford academic with a balding head and round glasses, Elton hated conferences and committees and preferred working alone in the field, but he was also something of a pugilist, both as an amateur boxer and a scientific iconoclast. Elton made his name in the 1920s researching Norwegian 
lemmings, lemmus, lemmus. He recorded how these small arctic rodents reproduced rapidly until they ran out of grass. They then went on mass migrations, sometimes swimming huge rivers in efforts to find food. Often they drowned. This discovery made him the originator of our myth about how lemmings commit mass suicide. During World War II, Elton used his knowledge of rodents to write reports for the government on improving the use of pesticides to reduce food loss to rats, mice, and rabbits. All of them, as he noted, aliens from continental Europe. From this work, he developed a rather doom-laden view about migrating species in general. He went public with these fears, first in three BBC radio programs broadcast in 1957, and then the following year in a book, the Ecology of Invasions by Animals and Plants began with the observation that Nowadays, we live in a very explosive world. It is not just nuclear bombs and wars that threaten us. This book is about ecological explosions. It went on to describe the spread and impact of a range of migrant species, some familiar today like the starling in North America and the Chinese mitten crab in Europe, but others largely forgotten, like the muskrat and the cabbage butterfly. He called their spread one of the great historical convulsions in the world's flora and fauna. He used the words of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in Lost World to describe the task of repelling the invaders as, quote, one of the decisive battles of history. Elton was not the first to use such militaristic language about alien species. It had pervaded thinking about nature in Nazi Germany. Notes Michael Barber of UC Davis, a leading German botanist of the day. Reinhold Tuxen, are purging the biological invaders would cleanse the German landscape of unharmonious foreign substance. End quote. A common Eurasian weed, Impatiens parviflora, was condemned as a Mongolian invader that should be repelled, quote, as with the fight against Bolshevism. In advocating native plants along the Third Reich's new Audubons, Nazi architects explicitly compared their proposed restrictions to Aryan purification of the people said evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, whose mother was Jewish. Well, anybody would accuse today's environmentalists of being secret... Well, nobody would accuse today's environmentalists of being secret fascists. This political legacy is, as Barber put it, disquieting. How slippery the slope, said Gould, between love of the familiar and hatred of the foreign. After World War II ended, the Cold War seemed only to increase the hysteria about mysterious and threatening invaders, which often involved alien plants as themes in John Wyndham's 1951 novel The Day of the Triffids. A South American plant genetically engineered by Russian scientists takes over the world after learning how to walk and kill humans. In the 1956 film Invasion of the Body Snatchers, automaton versions of humans hatch from giant seed pods and take on the identity of the first person they encounter. Despite such cultural resonance, Elton's book did not immediately attract much attention. 
it did gain traction as wider environmental concerns grew at the end of the 1960s. Stanford University's Peter Witzesek, who has been a prominent writer on alien species throughout his career, told New Scientist magazine that reading it as an undergraduate in 1969 persuaded him not to be a political economist, but to be an ecologist. It inspired others of his generation, like Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb, and is often set alongside Rachel Carson's Silent Spring as a key scientific text that underpinned new environmental thinking. It also spawned popular books on alien species, such as Carolyn King's Immigrant Killers, which described their impact on native birds in New Zealand, and Alexandre Minez's Killer Algae, or Caulerpa toxifolia in the Mediterranean. Excited language replete with military and xenophobic metaphors has continued to feature in the everyday discourse of scientists investigating alien species. And it even appears in their research papers. It may not sound very dispassionate or scientific, but it reflects the assumption widespread since Elton that foreign species are up to no good and that their being alien means their impacts can be assumed to be bad. They are guilty until proved innocent. In scientific journals where researchers normally strive to use neutral language, those who call themselves invasion biologists stand out. The subjects of their inquiries explode on arrival killing, eradicating, assaulting, and decimating native species while overrunning, flooding, and devastating their new habitats. They secure beachheads and fight battles. Daniel Simberloff of the University of Tennessee, currently the most prominent successor to Elton, began an article for the National Academy of Sciences on biological invasions by warning in large type that, quote, an army of invasive plant and animal species is overrunning the United States and noting darkly that the zebra mussel had, quote, come from the former Soviet Union. The demise of the Soviet Union did not change the rhetoric much. After 9-11, researchers were soon describing alien species as conducting terrorist attacks on the environment. Simberloff admits that, quote, some U.S. nativists in the past lumped introduced species with human immigrants as objects of scorn. But he insists that this does not mean that everyone concerned about introduced species was a xenophobe or racist. Of course not, but some have been. And it does not help his case that Cornell's David Pimentel, whose influential economic demonization of alien species a decade ago, is covered later in this chapter, was at the same time a prominent supporter of a faction within the Sierra Club, which at that time was opposed to any further human migrants from Latin America to the United States. In the past quarter century, invasion biology has become a distinct academic discipline with its own journals, conferences, research centers, and gurus such as Elton and Simberloff. But there is growing criticism of its narrow agenda 
an apparent myopic focus on demonstrating the hypothesis that aliens are bad. The charge is that invasion biologists have shown systematic bias in their studies. They have started from the presumption that alien species are bad and sought out research topics that confirm their view. They're like tabloid editors. They concentrate their studies on the nastiest and most sensational invaders. They've rarely been open to other interpretations and rarely investigate aliens with beneficial or more nuanced impacts on their surroundings. So I think that gives you a taste of some of the reason why I take with a big grain of salt this notion that there are such things as native or non-native plants and use it as what you would use when you're talking about trees and call it a common name meaning among landscapers it's sort of common vernacular to use this unscientific phrasing of native and non-native personally my shift in terminology i would suggest that we use the word wild i'm finding wild to be a much better synonym for what the terms native and non-native are often used to distinguish between. I like to make the distinction of a more botanical character and call things wild and cultivated and leave it at that. Uh, it's wild. It's a wild planet. It's a wild ecology. And let's hear some more from our friend here, Fred Pierce. Fred has written a number of really excellent environmental books that I encourage you to check out other works of his, Fred Pierce. Let's look a little more at this process. How does natural succession, evolution, what is the process by which ecosystems both recover from, uh, adapt to? How do different plants adapt? Uh, for instance, here's one. Here's a story in this book, The New Wild, that I found quite insightful about how unpredictable it is what happens with landscapes and species and what is a beneficial assemblage for whom and for what is the question we could be asking as far as how do we define even the word beneficial. Beneficial is a relative phrase depending on what life form you are perceiving the phenomenon from. So let's think about this from a, shall we say, sort of defined terminology of uh, biodiversity and rare life forms. What plant assemblage in this story that is a rare life form ends up benefiting from a plant community that is perceived of as inferior and lacking in its nativeness, yet increasing biodiversity. So this is from page 98. It's in the chapter entitled Ecological Cleansing, and we're talking about the Florida Everglades. It would be foolish to claim that alien species never do any harm, or that efforts to uproot them are always doomed to failure. Neither is true and advances in techniques may improve the chances of success, especially for biocontrols, where the main trick is to ensure the biocontrol won't start eating its way through native species. 
but we need a sense of proportion. And too often the species police forget that. From Maguire to South Africa, a misplaced belief that ecosystems can be brought back to equilibrium by removing one presumed felon has created new mayhem. Take an area of the Florida Everglades, known locally as the Hole in the Donut. This area of farmland was established in the early 20th century across 25,000 acres of slightly elevated ground at the heart of the Everglades. The new farms were seen as the prototypes for a large-scale drainage of the Everglades being pursued by the governor at the time, but ideas changed. Once seen as a putrid marsh full of dangerous creatures and disease, the Everglades was gradually rebranded as a biodiverse wetland worthy of protection. In 1947, the undrained area, the donut surrounding the hole, was turned into the Everglades National Park. <clears throat> Later, park authorities decided to pursue their conservation mission by filling the hole in their donut. In the 1970s, they bought out the farmers and waited for marsh vegetation to reclaim the abandoned fields. But the plowed, drained, and heavily fertilized soils were now very unlike the rest of the park, and the nature that showed up mostly comprised non-native species like the Brazilian pepper tree. Every weed in South Florida found it to be a great place to grow, says Jack Ewell, a restoration biologist who worked in Florida for many years, but is now at the University of North Carolina. That alien invasion was not in the script, nor was the fact that the thick alien undergrowth swiftly became a, ha a haven for much local wildlife. Among those that liked it and dropped by with increasing frequency were the last hundred or so of the Florida panthers, an endangered local subspecies of panther, Puma concorla cori. Fleeing traffic and tourism in the more picturesque parts of the park, the cat, recently named the official state animal, found the overgrown farms in the hole in the donut an ideal refuge its numbers began to rise. Panther habitat or not, the revegetated hole was not the pristine wetland that the park's people wanted. A pragmatic approach would have been to leave the place as it was. But after two decades of failed efforts to root out the weeds, park authorities decided on a final solution. They would rip out all the vegetation strip the soil back to bare rock, and start again from scratch. I was incredulous, said Ewell. Giant scraping machines removed some 7 million metric tons of soil, dumping it in mounds that remain to this day. It worked, after a fashion. Eradicating every last trace of the invasive vegetation did allow some native wetland plants to colonize the area, but... There is an unanswered question about what to do with the 25,000 dump truck loads of soil piled up. And what about the panthers? Concerned about the possibility that the ecological restoration might result in their extinction, park authorities augmented their stock with some females from Texas. 
The newcomers are a different subspecies, but a good enough match for breeding. There are now 160 panthers in Florida, a mix of the Florida and Texas subspecies, and a growing number of hybrids. Some taxonomists talk of deleting the distinction between the subspecies altogether. Yule is not impressed. Florida's state mammal is now a novel hybrid, he told me. A subspecies of an iconic cat has been sacrificed in order to fill the hole in the donut. Was it worth it? Only if you think there is no value in unique ecosystems such as the rich panther habitat created where the farms had been. Only if you think that spending tens of millions of dollars on trying to put back your notion of the pristine and conservation money is conservation money well spent. Only if you forget about the disappeared subspecies. Only perhaps if you have no sense of proportion. Alright, so I think that passage pretty well speaks for itself. You know, it's about scope and scale. Uh, some things are done with the industrial engineers that are considered to be fixing nature that are very misguided. It's uh, legal, for instance, for large developers to destroy and displace existing wetlands as long as they buy a piece of a man-made one in Ohio. I don't know how exactly that works, but it's legal under the federal laws of variances that developers can apply for with wetlands. And so you have engineers who are actually making for-profit investments in designing and building wetlands in parts of the country where real estate is cheap and then selling shares in it to developers. So we don't have a reasonable sense of how to allow landscapes to transform and become what it is that they are meant to become without huge amounts of fossil fuel and mechanical intervention and engineering. Uh, what is beginning to emerge is something that is more beautiful and more complex than the minds that are looking at it can understand. Let's talk about one more of these plants that's in here that I find interesting to get some history on. This one's one of my favorites from having gone to college down in the south in North Carolina. This plant was very prevalent. Kudzu. Kudzu is a member of the pea family. It comes from China, where villagers still use its stems to make rope, baskets, and paper. Its roots are a staple of traditional medicine, and its leaves feed livestock and even humans during famine. But its name is Japanese, and kudzu reached America via Japan thanks to a diplomat named Thomas Hogg. He was Uncle Sam's consul in Tokyo in the 1870s and regularly sent local plants home to his brother who ran a nursery in New York and sold kudzu as an ornamental. Thomas Hogg subsequently encouraged Japanese delegates to feature the pretty vine in garden exhibits at international trade exhibitions in the United States, including the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia in 1876, which was attended by 10 million Americans. 
Kudzu proved popular. Gardeners called it the front porch vine. Good Housekeeping magazine in 1909 lauded the delicious fragrance of its purple flowers and noted that it would flourish where nothing else will grow. That might have been the first warning sign, but back then it sounded good. Government agricultural scientists took an interest too. They recommended kudzu leaves as fodder for livestock. Its ability to grow anywhere attracted the attention of government agents fighting drought. From 1935, the head of the government's new soil conservation service, Hugh Hammond Bennett, promoted it as the linchpin of Operation Dust Bowl, his program to restore messed up soils, particularly in the cotton fields of the South. The vine would grow as much as a foot a day. Its spreading foliage covered the ground and prevented erosion by wind and rain. Its deep roots sought moisture and contained bacteria that fixed nitrogen from the air, fertilizing soils. There was a craze for kudzu. It had its own champion on the radio. Georgia farmer Channing Cope broadcast his daily down-home radio show from his front porch where he had planted kudzu. He formed the Kudzu Club of America and wrote articles praising it in the Atlantic Constitution. Kudzu is the Lord's indulgent gift to Georgians, Cope declared. It would heal the soils. If we will feed the land, it will feed us. Cope, the king of kudzu, was declared Georgia Conservation Man of the Year. Americans may shudder now at how kudzu creeps across the land, but back then it was seen as capable of restoring both the environment and the economy of the South. From 1935 to the early 1950s, government nurseries grew 100 million seedlings. Roadsides and railway embankments were seeded, and farmers were paid to plant the Japanese vine on their land. Altogether, more than 2 million acres were covered. Its abilities seem endless. When botanists tried to find something that would grow on land around Copper Hill in the Appalachian Mountains of Tennessee, which had been poisoned by acid emissions from copper smelters, the only thing that would do the job was kudzu. Where it grew, it sucked poison from the soils. At the height of the Cold War paranoia in the 1960s, Radiation ecologists from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory recommended the kudzu be part of the military arsenal, ready to be deployed to detoxify the land should a war with the Russians result in nuclear devastation. Times changed, however, as early as 1953, kudzu's potential to grow where it wasn't wanted had been noted. In the 1970s, Bennett's successors at the Soil Conservation Service quietly removed it from a list of plants approved for erosion control. By 1997, kudzu had officially become part of the problem rather than a solution. When it was, part, when it was put on the federal noxious weeds list, it was from then on regarded as a malign and alien competitor to native shrubs, trees, and crops. A current government fact sheet says that the former miracle vine, quote, kills or degrades other plants by smothering them under a solid blanket of leaves, by girding woody stems and tree trunks, and by breaking branches or uprooting entire trees and shrubs through the sheer force of its weight. Kudzu will grow almost any place where sunlight is abundant to drive its rapid photosynthesis. It climbs telegraph poles, 
strangles trees, buries hedgerows, and takes over abandoned buildings. Its fecundity and vigor are now officially a burden. It covers over 7 million acres across the south and extends its grip by about 120,000 acres annually. The vine hasn't changed. It is still revered in China. What has changed in America is the land and people's expectations of the land. Kudzu's foliage is no longer needed to feed grazing farm animals, which now often live in feedlots. Many southern pastures are abandoned, no longer kept in check by grazing. Kudzu now grows where it is not wanted, spreading almost anywhere south of the Mason-Dixon line. It is the enemy. The pastures are being turned into woodland where kudzu is a problem. There seems to me as an outsider to be something cultural at work here. Kudzu's incontinent growth extending roots underground to form new vines on the end seems to fit an American image of the Deep South as somehow depraved and unruly. In 1999, Time magazine listed the introduction of kudzu to the United States as among the hundred worst ideas of the 20th century, alongside asbestos, DDT, telemarketing, prohibition, and the Jerry Springer show. I mean, that is really unfair. Equating kudzu with the Jerry Springer show? Woo! Poor kudzu. <clears throat> so... Great book, The New Wild. Can't recommend it enough. Really excellent analysis. He goes through many, many more stories of species and ecosystems and shows very clearly how it's a different story for every plant in every place. It's not one story that we can generalize about and say whenever an introduced plant is doing well, it's a problem. Uh, as we hear in Pierce's language there, very well intimated the permaculture viewpoint, let's turn a problem into a solution. How does something that was a solution that is nitrogen fixing, forage for livestock, prolific soil fixers suddenly become a problem? How does something that we can make paper out of, make packaging out of, that also fixes nitrogen and builds soil and is forage for livestock become a problem? This makes no sense at all. This country needs to get off of the dole for corporate products as farmers and get back on free feedstocks that are being grown as a weed throughout their landscape and they're so prolific that they're even resorting to things like chemicals for the removal of many of these quote exotic invasives. So imbalance in ecosystems, understanding the context, understanding the climate where you're doing the work that you're doing. If it's farming, gardening, living, understanding the cycles and patterns of what you're seeing in the landscape. It's important to understand that all the landscapes have been fragmented, degraded, denuded, patched back together again with industrial inputs and outputs now that make it so we have very little rational sense when it comes to what it is that we're allowing to grow in the places that we often just drive through and pass by and see through a window but aren't actually cutting anything or raising anything or growing anything in those landscapes where tenants were not even 
really engaged in the coevolutionary processes of the places that we call home and beginning to understand that the first thing we need to turn around is this industrial pattern of lifestyle and begin to bring food back into the local landscape as something that is being procured and grown in ways that is cooperative with a diversity of life forms where we are eating from plants that are trees and shrubs and supporting animals that live in ways that are more able to forage off of materials like kudzu and mugwort and raising truly medicinal potent foods in our local environments in a cooperative way with restoring the landscape and bringing back biodiversity. So as we think about these patterns of use, I'm remembering the previous podcast where I was reading about the pecan from McWilliams. He's also setting the same stage for the weevil that became a real problem for pecan growers in the south. And the pecan focusing on that also as a really unique, only native nut to North America nut tree that we're also excited about personally and planted out about half a dozen grafted ones here at the Center for Bioregional Living. And the pecan really got inflicted with the weevil only due to ecological fragmentation of a habitat that when American Indians were widely cultivating the pecan, it was not plagued by the weevil because of the intact ecologies who supported many, many beneficial life forms who were eating the weevils that as the forest ecologies became decimated, and I mean, it is important to recognize that that is not a hyperbole. The forest ecologies of North America have been decimated. 99% of trees that were hundreds of feet tall and hundreds of years old were all cut down. 1% of them still exist on this continent, And it is the big story behind why there is so much die-off and so many challenges afflicting the remnants of this what was a robust ecosystem that has managed to grow back more or less depending on where you're talking about in the North American continent. They grew back a lot more in Appalachia due to its temperate character in deep soils, or Appalachian, however you want to put the emphasis on the word there. And let's look now and shift gears from our ecological perspective of wild ecologies and how to grow them back in ways that are restorative and participatory and begin to also look again at this theme of food production. How do we really support ourselves best in the easiest way, in the highest quality way, And that's my goal with the information I want to share with you here is to give a clear understanding of what is our path forward and how do we begin to create true resilience and a real high quality of life for ourselves in the present and have a long-term grow out for future generations to inherit that's even more productive and effective at our goal of a high quality of life. So here's another thinker that I'll point you to towards that end, who I found inspiring. She's one of the few voices saying, what exactly is it with people thinking that we can't actually support more people 
on less acreage when we put our minds to it rather than supporting a very small number of people on vast numbers of acres. And so Esther Bozerup, one of the few intellectuals, advisors to the UN, Danish economist. Let's look at the copyright on this book to get a sense of the time period. 1965. One of the few voices saying, you know, I'm sorry, she goes back to 1947 where she's uh, working in Geneva. And she's one of the few voices to say, let's, let's think again about this character who seems to be very iconic and given a great deal of attention in uh, evolutionary biology, especially in the world of population science and economy, as name is Thomas Malthus. And there are very few thinkers who I've found who have said, you know, possibly Malthusian presuppositions are not accurate. So here's what Esther Bozerup has to say about Malthus and some of his theories and the overall capacity for us to grow food for ourselves in a manner that is increasing production as time and population increases on smaller and smaller acreage. Ever since economists have taken an interest in the secular trends of human societies, they have had to face the problem of the interrelationship between population growth and food production. These are two fundamentally different ways of approaching this problem. On the one hand, we may want to know how changes in agricultural conditions affect the demographic situation, and conversely, one may inquire about the effects of population change upon agriculture. To ask the first of these two questions is to adopt the approach of Malthus and his more or less faithful followers. Their reasoning is based upon the belief that the supply of food for the human race is inherently inelastic, and that this lack of elasticity is the main factor governing the rate of population growth. Thus, population growth is seen as the dependent variable determined by preceding changes in agricultural productivity, which, in their turn, are explained as the result of extraneous factors such as the fortuitous factor of technical invention and imitation. In other words, for those who view the relationship between agriculture and population, in this essentially Malthusian perspective, there is at any given time in any given community a warranted rate of population increase with which the actual growth of population tends to conform. The approach of the present study is the opposite one. It is based throughout upon the assumption, which the author believes to be the more realistic and fruitful one, that the main line of causation is the opposite direction. Population growth is here regarded as the independent variable, which, in its turn, is a major factor determining agricultural developments. Actual events in the present period should go some way to make this change of perspective acceptable. Few observers would like to suggest that the tremendous increase in rates of population growth witnessed throughout the underdeveloped world in the two post-war decades could be explained as the result of changes in the conditions for food productions. It is reasonably clear 
that the population explosion is a change in basic conditions which must be regarded as autonomous, in the sense that the explanation is to be sought not in improved conditions of food production, but in medical invention and some other factors which the student of agricultural development would regard as independent variables. The burden of the present study is then to show that this line of causation where agricultural developments are caused by population trends rather than the other way round is the dominant one, not only in the special and obvious case of the two decades since 1945, but in agricultural development generally. The fact that attention was mainly focused on food production as a limiting factor for population growth in accordance with Malthus's main doctrine did not prevent economists also paying attention to the question of how population growth in its turn affects agricultural production. Indeed, the theory of rent as developed by the classical economists was one part of the answer to this question. What happens to food production when population increases? However, the particular way in which this problem was tackled by the classical economists was determined by somewhat special conditions for agriculture in the Western Hemisphere in their time, and this resulted in an oversimplified account of the changes in agricultural patterns that are brought about by the pressure of population growth. This point is of crucial importance for everything that follows in the present study, and some further explanation must be offered already at this stage. The classical economists were writing at a time when the almost empty lands of the Western Hemisphere were gradually taken under cultivation by European settlers, and it was therefore natural that they should stress the importance of the reserves of virgin land and make a sharp distinction between two different ways to raise agricultural output the expansion of production at the so-called extensive margin by the creation of new fields, and the expansion of production by more intensive cultivation of existing fields. This oversimplified conception of agricultural expansion has lingered on in economic literature, and even today, it is this type of analysis that is usually offered when problems of underdeveloped countries are discussed. Why this approach is unsuitable for a general theory of agricultural development is most easily understood if it is remembered that many types of primitive agriculture make no use of permanent fields, but shift cultivation from plot to plot. This fact, which seems to have been ignored by classical economists, is fundamental for our problem, for it follows from it that in primitive types of agriculture, there is no sharp distinction between cultivated and uncultivated land and that it is impossible, likewise, to distinguish clearly between the creation of new fields and the change of methods in existing fields. This study attempts to draw the full conclusion from this insight. The very distinction between fields and uncultivated land is discarded, and instead emphasis is placed on the frequency with which the land is cropped. In other words, it is suggested that we consider a continuum of types of land use ranging from the extreme case of truly virgin land, i.e. land which is never cropped, 
through land cropped at shorter and shorter intervals to that part of the territory in which a crop is sown as soon as the previous one has been harvested. It is the intention of this new approach to provide the framework for a dynamic analysis embracing all types of primitive agriculture, those which proceed by cropping a plot a single time, after which it is left fallow for a generation or more, as well as types of agriculture with continuous cropping of virtually the whole area several times a year. The Neo-Malthusian school has resuscitated the old idea that population growth must be regarded as a variable dependent mainly on agricultural output. I have reached the conclusion to be substantiated in the following chapters that in many cases the output from a given area of land responds far more generously to an additional input of labor than assumed by Neo-Malthusian authors. If this is true, the low rates of population growth found until recently in pre-industrial communities cannot be explained as the result of insufficient food supplies due to overpopulation. And we must leave more room for other factors in the explanation of demographic trends. It is outside the scope of the present study, however, to discuss these other factors, medical, biological, political, etc., which may help to explain why the rate of growth of population in primitive communities was what it was. Throughout our inquiry is concerned with the effects of population changes on agriculture and not with the causes of these population changes. All right, I'm just going to read a little bit more from Esther Bozer up here. You get a sense of her thoroughness with which she extricates both her uh, accountability and also does definitely make it very clear that she does not agree with the Malthus system. And one of the most important things that I feel she brings as another perspective is saying, you know, the... Uh, Evidence may show that certain things have not gone well. However, in many cases, we have actually uh, adapted. And here's how she puts it. She says, well, I'll back up and give you a little bit of context here, and then we'll, you'll hear this uh, ending point from... Um, Esther Bozerup's analysis of the conditions of agricultural growth and the dynamics of the relationship between land utilization and population growth. We're on chapter 20 of her book. When forests deteriorate, the grasses get their chance. In dense forest, grass cannot grow. But where the forest becomes thinner or is gradually replaced by bush, wild grasses will spread. The grass roots are not destroyed by fire, and land frequently exposed to fire, therefore, tends to become more and more grassy. The invasion of forest and bush by grass is most likely to happen 
when an increasing population of long fallow cultivators cultivate the land with more and more frequent intervals. It has been observed during the colonial period and after that many areas previously under forest and bush gradually become savanna or other types of wild grassland as a result of more or less frequent burning over or cultivation in relatively short rotations. Many authors believe that a large share of the savannas and other apparently natural grasslands owe their origin to similar changes in prehistoric times. When forests are replaced by grassland, natural fodder for cattle, horses, and other herbivorous animals becomes available. Those who think that a large share of the grasslands of the world are man-made have therefore questioned the old theory, according to which the stage of nomadism would generally have preceded that of agriculture. According to that theory, nomadic tribes had first taken to clearing of land for cultivation, when they had become too numerous to subsist by grazing of animals in natural grasslands. The sequence is now supposed to be the reverse. Tribes which previously cultivated short-lived plots in forest and bushland have come to rely on the grazing of animals only after they have cultivated forest plots for a very long period, ending in the transformation of the forest into grassland. Some authors are of the opinion that the retreat of the forests served to make the climate more dry and thus facilitated the spread of deserts. Others think that the spread of barren land is the result primarily of erosion caused by overcultivation and by overgrazing by the herds of nomadic tribes. There is recent evidence from many parts of the world of overstocked grazings being destroyed by overgrazing and wind erosion or by fires laying the land bare before the rainy season so that the topsoil is carried away by water erosion. Barren hills deprived of their earlier vegetation and topsoil abound in most regions of ancient civilization from China to the countries on both sides of the Mediterranean. It is not unlikely that overgrazing in the past is mainly responsible for the present state of these areas. It is a moot question how much importance overcultivation and overgrazing had in changing climate and increasing desert areas. Dudley Stamp concludes a UNESCO study of land use in arid regions with this cautious summary of recent opinions. The rapid development of ecological studies has thrown doubt on the primeval character of much tropical vegetation, whether any of the savannas and tropical grasslands with scattered trees can still be regarded as climax vegetation uninfluenced by man becomes increasingly doubtful, and the same is true of the, quote, natural vegetation of semi-arid and arid lands. If deserts are spreading, it remains uncertain how far the spread reflects climactic change and how far the conscious or unconscious work of man. The Neo-Malthusians 
have not missed the chance to interpret the dynamic theory of land use as a confirmation of Malthusian beliefs. Malthus thought that the increase of population to a level beyond the carrying capacity of the land must lead to the elimination of the surplus population either by direct starvation or by other positive checks which, in his opinion, could be traced back to the insufficiency of food supplies as the basic cause. The new version of Malthusian theory is based on the idea that the increase of population leads to the destruction of land and that people, in order to avoid starvation, move to other land, which is then destroyed in its turn. The Neo-Malthusians collect all the evidence on the misuse of land and paint a picture of the world as a place where growing populations are pressing against a food potential which not only is incapable of increase, but is even gradually reduced by the action of these growing populations. It is not to be denied that the food potential of the world has been narrowed down by populations who did not know how to match their growing numbers by more intensive land use without spoiling the land for a time or forever. But nevertheless, the Neo-Malthusian theories referred to above are misleading because they tend to neglect the evidence we have of growing populations which manage to change their methods of production in such a way as to preserve and improve the fertility of their land. Many tribes did not become nomads destroying the land by their herds of herbivorous animals, but used these same animals to cultivate the grasslands in short fallow rotations with the result that soil fertility was improved by animal manure. Others irrigated the dried-up lands and prevented erosion by terracing of the land. It is true that some regions, which previously supported a more or less dense population, are barren today. But it is equally true that regions which previously under forest fallow could support only a couple of families per square kilometer today support hundreds of families by means of intensive cultivation. Growing populations may in the past have destroyed more land than they improved, but it makes little sense to project past trends into the future since we know more and more about methods of land preservation and are able by means of modern methods to reclaim much land which our ancestors have made sterile. And that's the point here is that we have the capacity to do a better job, and to improve upon our future together. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and enjoy this broadcast and the insights I'm sharing about how to transform our wild ecologies and our cultivated ecologies.